Good morning, everyone. Um, uh, a very close friend, priest friend of mine, um, we were talking about the readings because the readings are not easy readings today. And uh, he said, will you sugarcoat your homily, Father? And I said, no. My people deserve the truth. And he's opted to use different readings <laughs> because, uh, because of catechumens and the elect and that. He can use the A readings, and I've chosen not to. Uh, uh, but it's an easier read, an easier homily. So my friends, uh, uh, I had much time to think about our first reading, and I want to uh, we'll go into my homily, but I will end with some words about the first reading. Um, but uh, when we look at it, um, it was really wonderful for my heart. Uh, this weekend was at the last Mass of a parishioner left and said, Father, uh, I thought Mount Sinai was where this happened. Why is it saying Horeb? And I said, very good that you caught that. I said, Horeb and Sinai are equal. They're the, kind of the same mountain. Uh, but cleverly enough, Horeb, uh, its loose translation is to glow or heat, to have heat. Burning bush, very clever. Uh, but it is uh, the same mountain. We, we refer to it as Sinai, uh, but I suppose back in that time it was called Horeb. And our first reading, my friends, what the writer of Exodus is trying to do for us, he's trying to explain in human language a mystery, a mysterious event that happened uh, on this mountain. Uh, and um, on it, it tells us that God appeared to Moses in a burning bush and revealing his name. And uh, in their language, Yahweh, our understanding I am that am. I am who am. And uh, when I think about that, uh, that's a verb. I mean, wow, okay, that's the first thing <laughs> I noticed. Uh, and the other thing was the way God describes himself uh, to Moses. He doesn't say, I'm the one who created you and everything. He doesn't do that. He says, I am the God of your fathers, of, not was, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's talking about a relationship, and he's using it in the present. That's eye-opening. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are very much alive then. They are with him. So it tells us something about God also. And furthermore, it goes on, I have heard the cries of my people. And what is being done to them. And he says, I will send you and you will liberate them for me. And for us Christians, it is a turning point in the Old Testament writings. Because now there is going to be an exodus and something greater than that will happen after. In our gospel, we see Jesus, uh, he rejecting a common understanding and belief that was prevalent in his time about tragedies and accidents and that they were inflicted by God, and he's refuting it. And yet, he does say, however, you must repent and change, otherwise that will happen to you. And Jesus tells the Jews of his time that they will lose the promises made to them unless they repent. 
And the barren fig tree, uh, the parable, there's a parable, and there's so much to be drawn out from it, but it symbolizes in Jesus' time the barrenness of the people of Israel. But he tells them there is still time to change. There is time to repent, but that time is growing shorter. And yes, we know that when Jesus spoke, in particular with parables that were accusatory, he directed them at the Jews of his time, in particular to the religious leaders, the Pharisees and scribes, to wake them up so they would open their eyes and their hearts. But yet, it is the word of God, so they apply to us. And so, my friends, when we look, the role of Moses prefigures the role of Jesus. Through Moses, God saved his people, Israel, from slavery in Egypt. And now, with all humbleness, Christians are the new people of God. And they are saved through the waters of baptism from slavery of sin and death. And just as the Israelites were en route to the promised land, so now Christians are en route also to the desert? <laughs> Maybe. But no, to the new promised land, which is the eternal kingdom. And our leader is not Moses, but Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself. We are fed, too, from bread from heaven. The Israelites called it manu. In English, manna. We call it the Holy Eucharist, bread from heaven. My friends, in the letter to the Romans, St. Paul, um, and to the Corinthians, St. Paul says that everything that God has done for them, most of the Israelites were still unpleasing to God. Their attitudes and their disrespect. He goes on further as a warning to us Christians. We must not presume anything. My friends, in today's gospel, the Lord gives us some warnings. The first is that every tragedy does not signify a sin. There are two incidents which our Lord speaks about. The first one involves some Galileans who were executed by Pontius Pilate in a very gruesome way. It's in the history books. They were offering sacrifice in their temple, as was their custom, Israelites, the Jews. And they were taken over by soldiers and killed instantly inside the temple. And doing so, their very blood was mixed with the blood of the sacrifices, which were animals. The second tragedy to which the Lord speaks about involved some people who were killed by the Tower of Siloam. It is an accident, and it collapsed upon them. And in speaking of these two tragedies, one is an atrocity done by a ruler, a government official, and the other was an accident, just an accident. The Lord says that these people were not necessarily greater sinners than anyone else. Every tragedy does not signify a sin and thus punishment from God. This is the living word of God, so we apply it to ourselves now in our time. And we read in our own time of many tragedies. 
And these events remind us that life is precious and it is also precarious and it is not to be taken for granted ever. Such things also serve to remind us that we do not have forever on this earth to say and to do the good which we are supposed to do, which we are commanded by Christ to do. Every tragedy does not signify sin. But such events can show us that the circumstances of our lives are not completely in our control. The second teaching of our Lord is that although every tragedy does not signify sin, every sin is a tragedy. We may not completely control the circumstances of our life, but we can make decisions about the circumstances of our soul. That you do control. Through sin, we cut off God's grace within us, unleashing spiritual disaster. Spiritual collapse comes not from the things that happen to us, but from the things we do and say. Perhaps the Lord is very well teaching that every tragedy does not signify a sin, but every sin is tragic indeed, because it is a tragedy that can be avoided. And then the Lord presents to his disciples a parable which has many, many depths to it. But in this case, he speaks about a fig tree that does not produce fruit but is given more time. You and I have been given time to change, to enter into the very life of the church. And for us Roman Catholics, the Mass and the sacraments and all the mysteries that they contain and they mean, they are the, for us to help us to break the bonds of sin so that we may enter into a new spiritual rebirth to have new vibrant life. In a way, that is what our Lent season is all about, a time of renewal and rededication. We are all been given more time, but so many of us Christians take that for granted. The second reading from St. Paul. He is writing to the spiritual apathy of that community. He reminds them that many of their ancestors walked through the baptism of the Red Sea with Moses. That baptism word meant something different for them than it does for us. But the baptism of the Red Sea. And they too were fed manna from heaven. But they still proved themselves ungrateful and unworthy. They still betrayed their God-given grace and dignity and the liberty. And they were lost. Paul tells them. And he warns us, because Paul was referring to a time in the Old Testament, then he switches and he says, and I tell you. So he's talking to the baptized now. We who are baptized, we who in the Roman Catholic Church receive Holy Eucharist regularly and still refuse to go through conversion and change, just as those Israelites refuse deep conversion. St. Paul writes, Let any of you who think he or she stands upright, watch out 
lest you fall. Christians must not think or presume just because they have received the sacraments that they are automatically saved. However, a Christian who is rooted in the very word of God, corresponding with the grace of God, cooperating with his grace, can produce great fruit for the Father. In the parable, the orchard owner is God. The gardener is Jesus. Many Christians fail to be productive or produce nothing at all. And for any number of reasons, mostly perhaps because of laziness, or because of apathy, they just don't care. Or maybe it's because their heart is still cold and stone-like, as Jesus spoke about. The tragedies of our time should remind us that we do not have forever. The tragedies of our life may not be in our control, but disasters to our soul absolutely is. Because every sin is a tragedy and avoidable. This gospel is a wake-up call and a threat of sorts and a warning. If people refuse chance after chance, the day will finally come, not when God shuts them out, but when they who have deliberately cho made choices that are not good shut themselves out. Certainly we can do much better as Christians, particularly because of and with the graces of our Lord that have been given to us freely. The brevity of this life in this world should call us to take seriously the time we are given to live lives of grace and love and charity and forgiveness and holiness. To serve the Lord in this life so that we may be happy with Him in eternity. And each of us, we have been given this time. And friends, that parable, God is the orchard owner, and Jesus is the gardener. So today's gospel, while it's harsh, and many have referred to it as the last chance gospel, and it is, I think that the gospel has this note of encouragement and hope because of Jesus, he's the gardener. And Jesus makes himself the tender of the tree. You are that tree now. And he stakes his reputation with his father on the fact that you will produce fruit. He's putting his reputation on the line. Is that not encouragement and hope? Belief in you. My friends, now, um, about that first reading, the parables in the New Testament, we open up, as they say, and we break, and they always have a surface meaning. So the people knew, uh, if the tree is not giving you fruit, you can either give it some more loving or cut it down, throw it in garbage, and burn it up. That's the surface. But there's spiritual and emotional things to that, and I tried to get at that. And I thought, this experience of Moses and how the writer of Exodus tried to help us to understand, it's important. So last night I stayed up to two in the morning writing these pieces, and now you're going to sit longer and suffer it. <laughs> so 
Moses sees something unusual. And the writer says it's a burning bush, and I think it's something even greater than that. But there it is. It's a burning bush. Moses recognizes that it's something strange is happening. And sometimes you and I, it would be true that at times in our life, we notice something unusual or strange happening, and yet we do not recognize it. My friends, religious experience is not just for special people. It's for you. Moses was not special in that sense. He was a shepherd, and he was out tending his sheep. Either we don't recognize what is happening because we are so bogged down with our own calendars and our own concerns that we do not recognize it, and some Christians just simply ignore it. And I bring this up because I hear over and over as a pastor and as a Roman Catholic priest, I pray, God doesn't hear me, I don't experience him, I don't see him. Is your heart open? Are you recognizing? Because the scriptures tell us he is ever-present and always around. Moses decides to stop what he is doing, which is very important, and he decides to go closer to this unusual thing. He lets go of his own agendas and his own ideas, and he directs his attention to this mysterious reality that has presented itself. But my friends, some people are so preoccupied, us, that they see and hear nothing. They feel nothing unless they're personally going to get something out of it. And if they don't, then they don't recognize God's presence. And because of that, God's agenda for them remains closed to them. We see the next step in this event. Moses gets a warning from God. Remove your shoes, for you stand on holy ground now. When you and I come to that place in our spirituality where we allow ourselves to recognize and feel the very presence of I am, I'm using the words from the Old Testament, from God, you then are on holy ground. That is the holy ground for you now. And Moses acknowledges this time for him by taking off his shoes. It seems like a simple thing, but it is symbolic. He takes off his shoes. In other words, he decides to stay. He plants himself. Most of us fall short of doing the same thing. Sometimes we feel his presence, but we are not willing to stay with it. Other things are more appealing to us. Moses has taken off his sandals. In other words, it is a sign that he is ready. And God shows himself in his presence, the great I am. God is ever-present everywhere. He wants to reveal himself to you and I, always. But Moses hid his face, we are told, because he was afraid and I think sometimes we are afraid also. What are we afraid of? We're afraid we can't control God. I know you guys know what I'm talking about now. And you know, as human beings, you want to control everything. And some of us are really control freaks. So this is a fearful thing. 
We can't control God. We're more comfortable not being in his presence because we can't control him. And we may not like what he's going to say because it will require us to change. Your priest, your pastor, had to do a lot of change when I became a priest. World of a difference for me. Yeah. So I know what I'm talking about, about fear. Couldn't control God, and he was asking me to make some major changes. And man, I wasn't ready at the time. That's why it took so long. But he was patient with me. And finally, Moses is sent forth. Go to the Israelites. Go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. He could have sent angels. He could have sent all the heavenly hosts. He sends Moses. And Moses, with his self-doubts and his feeling inadequate, if you go and read, he goes anyway. Moses sets out. And that is the pivotal piece of that story. People think it's the burning bush. It's not that. It's Moses is going. He made the change. He changed and he went and he did. Moses would rather have stayed on the mountain. <laughs> I get it. Most of us identify with that feeling. But if we are going to be open and experience God in our lives, we have to be ready to go and to move and to change. With such experience ahead of us, we can still change. We can choose to be different. And we must. It will be your decision. My friends, um, I've been your pastor for seven years. And part of my job is to draw you to Jesus and to get you to grow spiritually and to become, to walk in that holiness. And I pray when I get to heaven, I can say, I did what I could. <laughs> I love them. And I say this with great humility. As your pastor, I'm the shepherd and father of this house and this neighborhood. In that, I'm responsible for the sacraments. And the greatest one is the Eucharist. I am responsible for the Eucharist, for its reverence, for teaching you reverence about it, to teach you the understanding of it. That the Eucharist is the very body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, period. I'm held responsible for it, not only by the bigger shepherd, the archbishop, and then the bigger shepherd, Jesus. So my friends, my heart was broken when the sacristan came and told me for two weeks in a row the Eucharist has been found in the pew. I thought we were beyond this. It's heartbreaking to me. And it's intolerable, and it cannot happen anymore. I will have to go to the archbishop and report it, and he will write a, what we call a rescript, and you will not like the rescript because he will restrict you from having it in the hand in order to get control over this. And he will give me a look. He will give me a look that will be heartbreaking as a pastor. 
So I need your help. Father, how can we help you? When you come forward for the Eucharist, please consume it immediately. Don't walk away with it in your hand. If you have to step to the side for a moment, step to the side, but put it into your mouth. This has always been the custom. We're not supposed to walk back to the pew with it. Now, I don't know who was doing it or the reasons why, but it cannot happen anymore. And so, will you help me? And the way you do this is by consuming it in front. Don't worry about the person behind you. They're in a hurry. It's the Lord's day, not the hour. <laughs> so they'll have to wait. We'll take our time with the Eucharist. And the Eucharist is the summit and source. It is a great treasure of Mother Church. And so this is the way you can help me to bring it back under control. And my friends, I am the father of this house and its shepherd. I expect everyone to respect the teachings of our church. I expect everyone to show respect to each other, but to the teachings. And this is, I've always been a very touchy subject with ones, and I love all of our Christian brothers and sisters who are not Catholic. And we want you here, and many are here, but you may not have the Eucharist. And it is not because Mother Church judges your holiness or your heart. It is because the sacrament of the Eucharist is a great sign of unity amongst us and its teaching. And all Christians believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but beyond that, then things begin to change. So Christian denominations are not in union with us when it comes to this teaching and many others. And that is the reason why the sacrament of the Eucharist is not for you. I do expect you to respect this. If I come to your house, I will respect your rules and your traditions and your customs. I expect when you come to ours to do the same. And it's not just, there are some Catholics that may not receive the Eucharist in this time either. They know this is the symbol for it. My friends, if, Father, where is that? In, then you go to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. No matter that whole chapter, Paul will tell you uh, the reason. This is an act of charity, not about uh, elitism or being snobbish. This is actually a great act of charity. So I'm asking, please respect the church's teaching. For those who find it very difficult, well, then struggle with it. But your opinion does not change the church's teaching on this. Nor I will ever apologize for it either. It is, it, this is the teaching. And everyone must assent to the teaching. So um, pray about this. But I need your cooperation when it comes to the Eucharist. Will you please, please, please consume the Eucharist in front of the minister and do not walk away with it. This should bring uh, this under, un, under my control. And uh, I love you. I'm not yelling at you. I'm trying to keep you to understand. And then work with me. I can't do it without your cooperation. I can't do it alone. But if we work together, we'll be able to bring this under control, and you will save me from having to go to the archbishop and face him about something like this. Okay? And dear friends of Christ, I thank you always for being attentive uh, to my words, and uh, even though I go long sometimes. Um, <laughs> amen.